Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephen Cox, host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast and the Indivisible Town Hall series. Hi, I'm Shasti Conrad, chair of the King County Democrats. And I'm Will Casey, managing partner of uh, Left Wing Digital. So, look, we were going to do this whole discussion this week about the GOP civil war and about how Democrats could maybe exploit it. But the upcoming CPAC lineup would indicate that most national and state Republicans have pretty much caved to Trump already. So that's what's going on there. So we thought we would look at something else that we have control over, specifically the GOP's radical anti-democratic agenda that is happening at the state level and what we can do to stop it. So here are the numbers. There are currently 160 bills in 33 state legislatures that are aimed at restricting voting rights. And also uh, there are a bunch of states with GOP trifectas that are getting ready to just gerrymander the out of everything in their favor. So Democrats need to respond here. New DNC Chair Jamie Harrison tweeted recently that Democrats need to pass H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 in order to put a stop to this and win in 22 and beyond. And of course, you indivisible members will recognize these as part of our national agenda. And H.R. 1 is being voted on in the House next week. So this is a good time to talk about it. H.R. Uh, 1 is also known as the For the People Act. Will, uh, let's start with you, brother. What are some key things that HR1 would do? Uh, it's going to tackle a lot of the problems that have made our democracy, frankly, so anti-democratic uh, here in the last couple of election cycles. So it's a sweeping piece of legislation that would enact some much needed reforms, um, specifically limiting foreign interference in our elections, putting a cap on money in politics, increasing our election security, uh, making sure that every single state has a nonpartisan independent redistricting commission rather than letting state legislatures, uh, like you were just saying, gerrymander both their own seats and uh, Congress seats so that uh, voters get to pick their politicians instead of the other way around. Um, it would also in, uh, expand early voting access, allow for same-day registration, automatic voter registration, and vote by mail, all things that we have here in, in Washington State and have had for a little while now, but a lot of other states are still you know, behind the times in that respect. So critical legislation that absolutely must pass Congress. It is a bill that absolutely affirms the Democrats' belief in small-d democracy. Shasti, how do you see the importance of H.R. 1 and, and also H.R. 4, which is known as the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not hyperbolic to say that it might be one of the most important uh, pieces of legislation that we've seen in well over a decade. Um, to Will's point of what he just laid out, I mean, it's literally like every key part of democracy that has been under um, attack by the Republican Party is could be addressed through this legislation. And so it's incredibly important. And for the John Lewis um, Voting Act, H.R. 4, I mean, it is like it, it's po sort of poetic justice that, you know, the one of the first key pieces of legislation under a Biden administration would be to honor the legacy of John Lewis, who was one of the most important members of Congress, um, you know, in the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, and that. And that mirrors, you know, my experience of um, in the Obama administration, you know, when we were in the Affordable Care Act um, battle, you know, so much of that was in honor of Ted Kennedy and that re Congress really pulled together in wanting to honor a long serving member who had really lived up to this idea of what public service is all about. And I think that we have a real opportunity to do that here with honoring John Lewis through age four, but also through HR1, um, and that it really, I think since January 6th, it put this spotlight on, on like, what can, can democracy survive? And this helps us say yes, if we pass it through. And it, I think the entire uh, Democratic House 
um, caucus signed on to co-sponsor. Um, so, you know, the battle as it continues to be, will be in the Senate. Yeah, I mean, the it, it really is hard to overstate the stakes of this. Uh, and I'll just go ahead and say it as you're saying it. I mean, I, I think the future of our democracy may rest on this. The good news is, as I understand it, Will, is that the numbers are behind us on this. People really do like this bill. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, Data for Progress, a progressive polling firm partnered with uh, Crooked Media, the Pod Save America folks, um, to do a poll recently of 1,500-some uh, likely voters nationwide. And uh, even across all parties, uh, it's extremely popular. Uh, 57% of Republican voters say that they want the bill when they are described a, a relatively neutral framing of the bill. Um, and even universal vote by mail, part of the bill that's read by voters as most partisan because of all that disinformation that Chastity referenced uh, about the 2020 election that led to that armed insurrection in January, um, 57% of all voters support universal vote by mail. Um, and so for those of us talking about this to, to people who might not be familiar with those individual provisions, um, this is the most convincing frame that the poll tested, uh, particularly with independent voters. So people who are less uh, you know, rigidly partisan and, and lower information generally on sort of the day-to-day -day happenings in politics. So here's how they describe the bill. We need this bill to protect civil rights and voting rights because everyone should have an equal voice in our democracy, no matter what you look like, where you come from, or how much money you have. And that's really the core of this appeal, is that it puts everybody on a level playing field and actually requires politicians to appeal to a majority of Americans in order to get elected. What a novel concept. <laughs> Yeah, uh, what a novel concept indeed. Uh, and I, I always keep thinking back about how, hey, Re Republicans, maybe you could actually adopt some policies that people like and would vote for. No, 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 we'll just rig the system. Much easier. So look, HR1 is popular. We know that. But we also know that it's not popular enough to get 60 in the Senate. Um, and we know this because we couldn't get more than seven Republican senators to vote to convict Trump after he literally tried to have them killed for doing their job. So um, that means that we need to get rid of the filibuster so that legislation like HR1 can pass with a straight majority. Will, staying with you on this, just briefly, tell us about the history of the filibuster and why it exists. Uh, yeah, so in in uh, a much abbreviated format, that's not going to do the entire history here justice. Uh, I think there it's are other podcasts for, for that. Uh, yeah, and I encourage yeah, them, but yeah, that's not yeah, ours. That's fair. There's yeah. a lot of yeah. There's a lot of uh, material out there that you that I'm synthesizing here. You know, folks can read as Klein, as well as uh, a number of national commentators who who have been out on this issue. Um, but I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand because it sounds like sort of arcane Senate you know rules. This must have been around since the founding. It absolutely was not. Um, you know, it just was sort of an accident of history that after the Senate uh, amended some of its rules to remove some, you know, at the time, uh, things that were thought of as redundant, uh, people sort of discovered that there wasn't a way to force people to stop talking. Um, and that didn't really become a common tool of senators to stop legislation until the Jim Crow era. I mean, that's when this really picked up. And people need to understand the context and the history of the filibuster, that this is a tool of institutional racism, right? This is how uh, Democratic senators in the South were able to prevent prevent things like the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Acts, uh, and a routine number of anti-lynching laws that were stifled in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, I mean, and still, the lynching is not a federal crime, which is ridiculous. Um, and I think that it's important for people to understand that that's what we're calling back to here when people say they want to honor tradition. What they're honoring is the tradition of the Senate using minority rule in order to you know, strip rights, including civil rights and voting rights, from Americans of color. So if you're if that's the tradition that you want to uphold, 
you should definitely be in favor of sustaining the filibuster. Well, I mean, what I hear you saying is that it was designed literally to prevent pieces of legislation like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, Shasti, how do you see the filibuster's role right now? I mean, exactly that. I mean, it is preserving institutional racism um, as well. Just took us through the history. It has been overly used whenever it has um, whenever there's been legislation that would impact um, people of color, particularly black people's um, uh, persuasion ability to be able to get better, more rights, expanded rights. I think that, you know, if we don't, if we have an opportunity to kill the filibuster and we don't do it, we are complicit in it. We've spent the last year basically talking about how do we change these systems? How do we, um, how do we, how do we attack institutional racism? And if Democrats choose not to do this, then we are, we have to be held responsible for that. So the time is now. Um, President Obama, you know, started uh, talking about the filibuster as, you know, a relic of the Jim Crow era in the last couple of years. And it absolutely it it is it is that. Um, And, you know, I think also that it's in some ways it's almost like putting back in three fifths a person, because what it does is it it limits the um, representation of uh, districts that are majority people of color, majority black. the fact that D.C. still does not have a, you know, any kind of federal representation um, when it is a it is a majority black city in the South. You know, you have um, large communities of color that just helped us win. You know, they helped us win the Senate. They helped us win the Biden presidency. And here we have the filibuster that is kept in place so that those those same people's votes are not being reflected in Congress. And so. We have to we have to do this. And we as Democrats have to remember we won. We seem to keep forgetting we won. So this is the time. Like if you're not going to use this type of power to end these types of relics um, when you're the winner, then how are you going to expect people to continue to vote you in, hoping that things change? Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, it's bitterly ironic that the Democrats are ultimately the ones who are uh, standing in the way of this and that the obstacles, and we know who they are. So it's Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, uh, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Diane Feinstein of California, Mark Warner of Virginia, and uh, Patrick Leahy of Vermont. And uh, uh, even Biden has said that he's unsure about this. These are Democrats. What strikes me as odd about this is that with the exception of cinema, these are Democrats who have watched almost nothing get done in the Senate for almost a decade because of this very thing. So, Will, just in the interest of kind of understanding the context, help us understand why they might want to keep it. Well, I think it's it's frankly uh, easier for those senators to be opposed to something that doesn't really grab people's attention, like, you know, filibuster reform, um, when they don't want to necessarily be out there against, you know, popular positions like uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, right? And that's something that, you know, of those folks you just mentioned, um, you know, Joe Manchin is the only one who's actually come forward and said, I actually oppose this and here's my preferred alternative, which doesn't come close to meeting the need of, of working people in this country. But uh, I think that it's it's something that they prefer, as, as our client has said, you know, the politics of inaction rather than the politics of action, right? They, they would prefer the consequences of, you know, trying to 
say that, oh, well, we wanted to do this, but Republicans kept us from doing so because of the filibuster, rather than having to say, like, I actually voted against, you know, popular policy X, Y, or Z, right? Um, and I think that that's something that we just need to make clear that we're not going to tolerate any longer because we can, you know, people have gotten smart to this uh, situation and, and understand that, you know, we do have the power to make change here and it's on us to actually, you know, use that power that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy excuse to get out of uncomfortable votes. Just ask Mitch McConnell. I think the reason why he hasn't torpedoed it yet is because a lot of really terrible shit comes out of the House, and he doesn't want to have to be put in the position of having to put it up to the the Senate for uh, a vote. Uh, Shasti, what do you make, speaking of Mitch McConnell, which I try never to do if I can help it, but here we are. um, What do you make of the think about what the GOP will do with this when they're in power argument? I mean, I understand it, but I also think like they don't get to determine how we do our business. They lost. Um, and they also just uh, decided that it was OK that, you know, there was an insurrection and that basically, uh, you know, that their side could uh, push democracy to the brink. So we have to we have to play our game. Um, I will say that one of the things I did appreciate this past week was uh, for for a brief moment, and I can't remember which senator it was, but there was a senator who turned to one of the Republicans and said, you know, like, I'm not going to get lectured by you when you just didn't allow, you know, you just allowed Trump off the hook. You don't get to tell me about some sort of moral high ground. And that is the exact type of energy that I'm looking for Democrats right now. It's like we have it. It's unfortunate, but we have to be the adults in the room who are setting up for accountability and boundaries. And we're saying, like, this is how this is going to go. We you're nothing like we you have given up the right to be able to have a say in what's happening here because you were willing you sold you'd pick party over over country because you just sold out democracy. And so that's, I, I just think like, you have to bring that energy and stop and stop trying to play the Republicans game. And as Republicans, uh, a few famous Republicans are want to say, elections have consequences. So Will, we know who the targets are here. We live in Washington state. How do we put pressure on these senators, uh, the ones that I mentioned, the six senators I mentioned, in a way that yields results? Well, I mean, I think it's it starts with, you know, contacting our own representatives and, and our own senators to make sure that they have the language and they understand that we're supportive of them, you know, taking this step, right? Because it's not a small thing we're asking people to do. You know, these senators have lived through an experience where in their minds, um, if they didn't have access to the filibuster, then the rights to reproductive uh, health care might have been taken away or, you know, even worse voting reforms might have been, uh, you know, or, or more anti-discrimination or discriminatory voting laws might have been put on the books at the federal level. Um, but we just have to we have to start coding opposition to repealing the filibuster as a Republican policy position, right? Because this is, at in its current form, just another example of how the modern Republican Party ha- is resorting to technicalities and procedure to preserve the fact that a minority of Americans are ruling over the majority of us. Um, and so we just need to keep hammering home that all Republicans oppose repealing the filibuster and most Democrats are for it, right? Do we want Manchin and, and Cinema and, and the rest of those folks that you named uh, to feel like they are siding with their colleagues who refuse to convict someone who tried to have them killed? Uh, because I think that's a pretty powerful you know, way to, to persuade these folks. And I think you know, making sure that our senators who are on the right side of this issue understand what it is that, that is required here and what you know the stakes of this conflict are um, and that we're going to have their backs if they take that bold stance. I think that's the way that we can be effective. Yep. 
right across the board. Shasti, what do you think? I mean, I I, I agree with Will. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's time we have to we we have to call their bluff. You know, we have to just say like, okay, like we're moving forward. So you're either getting on the train and coming with us, or you're not. And you're getting left behind. And you want to be left behind with Marjorie Green Taylor and like this this case of nut jobs? Like, no, you don't. You want to come hang out over here. So, you know, I think, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious, but it, there's very serious things that are at stake. There's things like access to reproductive health care. There's the Affordable Care Act. There's so much that is like has been on the table. And Republicans had no problem uh, trying to turn that over the minute that they could. And so we have to push back against that. We also have to remember that we don't know how long we have all three bodies, right? We maybe have two year window to get some really significant shit done. And so we cannot play it scared. We have, we have to go for it. Um, we also have to understand that this, like the messaging of the value and like of reluctance in the face of GOP obstruction, it's like that being patient and, and, and like, you know, we just can't pass, we can't pass filibuster reform. Like it doesn't work. It doesn't work on people. Um, just last night, you know, when people were talking about the, um, the parliamentarians decision around minimum wage, you know, I mean, like, people people are struggling like they want their checks because because they're facing eviction and they can't feed their families and you know they're they've been sick like that's what they care about we used to say in dc all the time it's like nobody wants to know about how the sausage gets made and by delaying and dragging out this type of these types of battles around like the filibuster and stuff it just turns off americans from wanting to be a part of the process and we just have to we just have to play from a power role and a power place. Hundred percent. I mean, the way that you're describing it, you know, this battle around the filibuster and trying to get anything done makes it sound like a parlor game. It is unbelievably offensive and tin-eared to the needs of of just you know millions of suffering in Americans right now. But if you want to appeal to the needs of the elected officials themselves, I would say, listen, if the Democrats can't get anything done because the filibuster is locking things down in the Senate, you're going to lose likely in 2022 and 2024. And I think that's a that's a good incentive right there. Uh, Will, as you mentioned, uh, even reliably blue senators, a lot of them are still on the fence uh, about this thing. So we in blue states have work to do to stiffen their resolve. I thought we'd do a little role playing. What do you say? So, uh, Will, you will be the activist and I will be I'll be an underpaid staffer. Uh, so Sounds good. So, all right. So you give me you give me three uh, solid talking points. Um, hello, uh, Senator Blah Blah's office. <laughs> well, you know, thank you for for taking my call. Uh, I'm calling to urge the Senator to support the For the People Act and vote to end the filibuster if Republican obstructionists use it to keep Americans from having free and fair elections. I just want the Senator to know that we can't allow a relic of the Jim Crow era to block progress on ensuring every American can safely and easily cast their vote. And if we allow the filibuster to stop the federal government from guaranteeing that no state can block voters of color from the ballot box, then we're just as complicit in their voter suppression as Mitch McConnell and every Republican senator. So so that's why I'm confident that the senator you work for will do the right thing and take whatever steps are needed to pass the For the People Act, including repealing the filibuster. Thanks for passing along my input. And scene. Very, very nice. N- nicely done, brother. Yeah. Uh, outstanding. I, uh, yeah, that, that, that is exactly right. So, uh, yeah, if anybody needs that, you can just, you know, hit the, the 15 second rewind and that'll be there for you. So, uh, well, we're going to say uh, so long to you uh, right now and we're going to bring in our friend uh, Rich Smith. Hello, Rich. Hello, Stefan and Jasty. Uh, Rich, of course, writes for this stranger. How are things going? Um, I can only imagine that this is a very hectic time. 
to be writing uh, for The Stranger. And yet, now that I think back on like the last year or so with the pandemic and the protests and everything that's been going on in Seattle, I, I, I'm just now all of a sudden I moved to ask, do you sleep? When, when do you sleep, man? I uh, I do uh, sleep. I'm a pretty regimented uh, person, but I don't uh, get to sleep as much as I like to, uh, unfortunately. Nor do I. Nor do I. And but actually, it's not for lack of trying. I'm just middle aged. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on inside my my brain. Okay, so listen, we brought you in to talk about the very kind of advocacy that Will was just laying out. Uh, but but here at the state level, so you recently wrote a piece about a bill in the state legislature that would prevent insurance companies from using people's credit scores to set insurance rates. This is a practice that was news to a lot of people, myself included. Um, The bill has now passed out of committee, but it no longer resembles anything like how it was written. Um, Let's start here. First and foremost, Rich, why is it harmful for people's credit scores to be used in determining their rates? It's so dumb. I, I, well, I, it's, it's, this has been a, um, just to your first uh, point, it's been uh, an issue for, I think, over 20 years in the legislature when the Washington's insurance commissioner, Mike Kreidler, uh, first uh, got elected. He wanted to end the practice then. He called for the practice to end now, 20 years after the first time he did it, and there's still uh, these problems. Uh, but to, so it's, it's, this is kind of like a long time um, uh, simmering issue. But to answer your question, it, it's harmful to use credit scores to set insurance rates because low income people tend to have lower credit scores than rich people. So the practice ends up making poor people pay more for auto insurance, let's say, which is mandatory than rich people. And uh, black and brown people are overrepresented among those with low incomes, thanks to um, centuries of public policy designed to plunder their wealth. So the practice also ultimately spits out um, a racist outcome. Uh, Washington's uh, insurance commissioner, Kreidler, uh, notes that one in five black people have a credit score below 620, which would count as low compared to one in 19 uh, whites. So that gives you a sense of the the, the disparate impact uh, when you use credit scores to do this. And again, you know, since the state forces everyone to buy car insurance under penalty of um, fine, then the state is basically forcing poor people to get poorer while buttressing uh, structurally racist policies. I, well, what you said, I think, was so key. Can you say a little bit more about those numbers of like how much more are lower income and people of color actually paying and how much do the insurance companies make off of that? The There's a January study that uh, the uh, C- Consumer Federation of America, it's a consumer group, put out. Uh, and they uh, used a profile of an of a, of a auto insurance shopper in South Seattle uh, and, and, and tried, chopped around for insurance uh, rates uh, from different insurance companies. And the only thing that they changed about the profile was what the person's credit score was. Um, I think they did 35,000 uh, quotes, you know, gathered 35,000 quotes and just changed up the, the credit scores. And ultimately what they found is that poor people uh, or people with uh, poor credit scores end up paying 80% more for car, car insurance wow. on average in that zip code 
at least in Washington, than a rich person. Uh, and depending where you shop, that could be greater. Um, the cheapest rate uh, that they found for a person with poor credit score was about $1,000 a year. Uh, and the cheapest rate they found for somebody with an excellent credit score was about $372 a year. So they end up making, on average, about 400 bucks more on a poor person than uh, on a rich person. Um, you know, uh, using this policy. And much like our tax structure, it's inverted. The people who can least afford to pay are the ones who are getting charged the most. Um, this, it, would, it seems to me that there would be a knock-on effect with this, right? That uh, this would indirectly lead to more uninsured motorists being on, on the road and also raising interest rates for, uh, raising uh, rather insurance rates for everybody. Uh, is, is this proven out? Yeah, the well, the, Washington has one of the highest um, uninsured rates in the country. We're, we're seventh uh, the last time uh, they checked, and uh, we also and because you know when there's a bunch of when we have higher uh, there's a bunch of people on the roads who don't have insurance, then the uninsured motorists premium that people buy when they buy car insurance also raises. So yeah, it ends up hitting everybody. Are there other states that have? legislation like this and what are the results yeah california hawaii massachusetts michigan and utah uh, all ban the use of uh, credit scoring when you're setting auto insurance premiums at least they have other restrictions on home and other kinds of insurance but they all band together on that and yeah i mean somehow auto insurance companies still find a way to sell uh uh, uh, policies to people in California uh, and in Michigan. Uh, the results are, are kind of uh, hard to measure. Uh, Massachusetts, which bans um, using credit scores for auto insurance, has one of the lowest uninsured rates, but Michigan has uh, one of the highest. So it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag using that metric, but uh, they, they, they make money in those states, you know? <laughs> well, so let's talk about what happened to the bill in the Senate Business Committee, because as I mentioned, the bill that made it out of the committee uh, has been amended. It no longer resembles the original bill, which was written by Senator Mona Doss. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, r rather than uh, ban the practice outright, uh, the bill now directs insurance companies to use the highest credit score available whenever they renew a policy for one of their uh, clients. And, and auto insurance policies renew about every six months or a, a year, uh, depending. Uh, the idea uh, was to, like, if your credit score dipped as a result of the pandemic, then this would tell the insurance companies to use your higher credit score, you know, the one you used before the pandemic destroyed your finances or whatever. But the law doesn't take effect until October of this year. So it would only help people whose credit rating suffered after the this upcoming October. So if you lost your job before and that tanked your credit score, or if you got a divorce or whatever before, because credit scoring First of all, there's a bunch of different kinds of credit scoring authorities, and they each measure different kinds of things. And the things that they measure are not like, did Rich pay his bills on time or whatever. It's like, how many and what kinds of credit score credit cards did Rich buy, you know, uh, select? And does he have too many retail credit cards or too many? Like, it's not, it's 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 not it's not the it's not the best measure for a lot of reasons to determine whether or not somebody could pay their bills or whether or not somebody is 
good behind a wheel. You know what I'm saying? But in any event, getting back to the point, um, if your credit tanked uh, uh, before October of this year, then you're still screwed. And if you try to get a new insurance policy, you want to go shop around, uh, the the new rule wouldn't apply uh, to a to a to a new uh, policy. It only applies to renewing policies. So, so how did this amendment happen? Who were the players? What were the mechanisms? How, how did this amendment uh, basically water down this bill into nothing? Senator Mark Mullet didn't um, respond to a quest uh, for comment, so I didn't get uh, to talk a chance to talk with him uh, about uh, his conversations uh, on this. But during the uh, committee hearing uh, on the bill, other members of the Senate's business committee uh, thanked him for his work in negotiating with stakeholders and the bill sponsor, Senator Mona Doss, uh, stakeholders being, of course, the insurance companies who don't want this uh, to pass. And so he had a, a, a he was a, had a central role uh, in, um, in striking this, uh, what he would call a compromise. He is the chair of the Senate business committee, correct? That's right. He's the chair, and so he co- he controls ultimately what goes through uh, his, his committee. So so he is ultimately the one who is responsible for watering this bill down. And I hear people kind of scratching their heads going, you know, uh, hey, Mark Mullet, I've heard that name, but I can't place him. You've you've dumped a, a lot of ink on Mark Mullet over the uh, over the past couple, <laughs> past couple of years. Uh, uh, what else should we what else do we know him for? You're not wrong. And this is not the first time that Mark Mullet has carried water for the uh, insurance companies. Uh, just last year, for instance, um, he tried to create a multi-million dollar loophole for big businesses who use captive insurers. And if you, <laughs> and sometimes when I want to go to sleep, you know, uh, I just talk to myself about captive insurers, but it's actually, a you know, it's a big deal. Uh, and, uh, and, and he tried to create a huge loophole to um, make, make it easier for businesses and so the businesses it basically means that businesses wouldn't pay a, a insurance premium tax that they should pay and he wanted to make sure that that didn't happen and that businesses could continue using those insurers um, without uh, paying for the right to do so uh, but that's not the only thing obviously that he's done uh, in recent memories he's worked to black block the uh, capital gains tax he's worked to block climate change bills low carbon fuel standard. Um, you might have remembered him for voting against a bill that would have repealed um, Washington's ban on affirmative action. Um, he also, during the pandemic, <laughs> threw uh, ice cream social uh, in around the Issaquah neighborhoods for kids. You know, it was like a, you know, it was outdoors or whatever, but it was in the time when we all didn't know about the difference, much about the difference between outdoors and indoors. He has a pool in his uh, McMansion that was installed in the middle of the pandemic, again, outdoors, but, you know, he's that kind of guy. You know, Senator Mullet is a, a former bank executive for the Bank of America, for Bank of America, who now owns a couple of Ben and Jerry's pizza or Ben and Jerry's ice cream shops and pizza places in uh, in Issaquah. And what's good for business is what's good for Washington. You know that's that's his his deal. And and even if in this case, you know, it sounds like there's a, a disparate impact for um, uh, using this insurance policy. Well, that guy, yeah, people are now saying, ah, yes, that rings a bell. Uh, so the call to action, gang, here is if you live in the 5th LD, call Senator Mullet, ask him to remove the amendment and pass the original bill. And if you are outside of the 5th LD, call your senator and uh, talk to them to support 
the original bill and ask Senator Mullet to remove the amendment. Rich Smith, thank you so much as always, man. It's good to talk to you. My pleasure. It's good to talk to you both. And so, Shasti, before we go, um, you have a benefit concert this Saturday that is super exciting. We did a, a piece on it on the pod yesterday, but uh, remind us one more time. Tell us about it. Yes, I'm so excited. So tomorrow is our big um, Opportunity Washington concert um, that is celebrating women of color uh, leaders here in Washington state. And uh, our big headliners are Shaka Khan and Andre Day. And then we have uh, local celebs like Lady A, who was on your show yesterday, the real Lady A. Um, and then it's hosted by Angela Russell from King Five's evening uh, TV show. And you can watch it tomorrow at 9 p.m. on Kong which is on Channel 6 in Western Washington. And then for those of you in Eastern Washington, it's going to broadcast next weekend, March 6th, 8 p.m. on KSKN. And it is uh, benefiting such a great organization. I am so impressed, not surprised, but very impressed uh, at your ability to both create the amazing organization that you have and also to put on this A-list celebrity event, Chasty. You are a uh, force of nature, my friend. Thank you very much. Well, gang, that is it for this week in review for Shasti Conrad and Will uh, Will Casey. I'm Stephen Cox, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.